the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 24, verses 1 through 28 is where we're going to be at this morning. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. And Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, and I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. And then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand. And you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them from before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities which you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, then choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went, and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore we will serve the Lord, for He is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You're not able to serve the Lord, for He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then He will turn and do you harm and consume you, and having done you good, after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve Him. And they said, We are witnesses. And he said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you, and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. And Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. 
And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be witnesses against us, for it has heard all the words that the Lord spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. Father, thank you for um, this book. Uh, thank you, Father, for uh, the picture of a land, uh, a new life that you have provided and promised. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness, your steadfast love and pursuit and care and deliverance and gifts to your people. Father, I pray that you would enable us, Father, to identify the idols in our life this morning, that we would put them away and that we would serve you. God, keep us from being afraid of commitment. Keep us, Father, from dabbling. God, I pray that you'd put it in us today to serve you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Joshua knows he's going to die. This is the end. If I had kept reading, uh, the next couple verses would have told you that he died at the age of 110. So this was a man... Uh, who knows he's about to leave this earth. Joshua, like Caleb last week, was born a slave in Egypt. He was delivered out of Egypt following Moses and through the Red Sea. He became Moses' assistant, and he was one of the 12 spies that went into the land uh, when they got to the promised land the first time. He and Caleb were the only two who believed the promises of God and were willing to act in faith upon those promises to trust that God would do exactly what he said he would do, no matter the difficulty of the circumstances. But the people would not trust God, so Joshua circled with Caleb in the wilderness for 40 years until that entire generation died off, except for he and Caleb. When Moses died, Joshua became the leader of Israel, He was commissioned by God to lead Israel into the promised land that God had provided for them to be really an instrument of the wrath of God upon the the Canaanites and the the people who were the inhabitants of the land. And he accomplished that. And Israel is now, at the end of the book of Joshua, dwelling in the promised land. They've gotten their inheritance. The land's been divided out. They are living the new life that God has promised and provided. And now Joshua, as an old man, is about to die. And he knows he's about to die. And he's concerned with what will happen after he dies. I mean, I am am impressed with people who who not only use the end of their life well, uh, both Caleb and Joshua did that, who not only kind of capture that, those last kind of days and moments of their life to say some really significant things, but but, but I'm, I'm impressed with people who are concerned about legacy. Uh, I like that. I, I, I like that when people are not only looking at their own time here, but they're looking to generations to come. And, and Joshua is one of those guys. Uh, he, he can see that even though things are really great right now, you know what I mean? Man, this is, this is maybe the, the glory days right here, you know? They've, they've got the land, they're possessing the land, they're following the Lord. But Joshua is painfully aware that if they turn to the idols of the Canaanites, to the idols of the people who have inhabited that land, everything will fall apart. Joshua is very aware that, that, that all that God has done will be undone in coming generations if they do not follow the Lord. And so, so Joshua in this last chapter is, is really 
seeking to impact the future generations and create a legacy of following the Lord, not only with Israel, but particularly with his own family. So Joshua calls the leaders of Israel together uh, to challenge them one more time, really to make a covenant. This is a very covenantal passage, and so it, it kind of follows the, the form of, of how a covenant would be made in those days where, where two parties would come together, and one would say, well, this is all that I've done for you, this is all I commit to do for you, and the other would say, well, this is what I commit to do for you, and they would, they would have this kind of spiritual contract in this case, it's a spiritual contract, really a spiritual marriage. That, that is the best uh, picture of what's happening here. And, and I would say this, by nature, we really don't like what, what is in this passage, okay? It, it, it amazes me that we've kind of picked this verse out of the Bible to put on our walls and uh, cross-stitch and, you know, make blankets out of and everything. You know, choose this day whom you will serve. You know, come on. And the reason that's really surprising is, is because by nature, we really don't like commitment. Um, by, by nature, we, we, we don't like the responsibility and the accountability and the exclusivity that come with this kind of covenantal com commitment. You see, commitment means that we can't dabble. Um, we like to dabble. We, we like to enjoy the benefits of something without having the responsibility of that thing. The accountability. Commitment means exclusivity. It means that to be committed to one thing, I, I can't be committed to all these other things. That, that, is, that is inherent in, in the spiritual type of covenant. Really, marriage is the best example of this kind of covenant. I think there's a reason why the, in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, marriage is probably the, the most vivid illustration of the covenant commitment between God and His people. And so on, on August 10th, 1991, I made a marriage covenant to Emma Long. And with that commitment, where, where I stood in front of, of everybody and said, you know, this day, you know, I, I choose you, I, I choose this, this woman. I, I commit myself, I bind myself publicly and legally to, to provide for and care for and love and cherish and serve and pursue and, and be kind to and understanding with this woman until death. And a big part of a marriage is exclusivity, right? It, it, is, it is saying to be committed to Emma is, means I will not be committed in the same way to any other woman in the world. I will, I will not attach myself to anybody else. I will be solely hers and she will be solely mine. That, that's really the picture that we have in our society that best corresponds to what Joshua is doing right here. That's what Joshua is calling Israel to. He's saying, I, I want you right now to make a binding commitment of who you're going to worship, who you're going to serve. I want, you, I want you to publicly say you're going you're to serve and worship the Lord only. And again, I, we, we like to say the verse, but honestly, we're, we're a little bit allergic to commitment. Um, it makes us itchy, doesn't it? Come on now. I mean, I mean you, you, you get nervous when people start calling for it. Um, your stomach churns a little bit. You get a little antsy. It, it ignites that kind of fight or flight, you know, reaction in you. Um, let me tell you an experience that I have all the time, okay? Um, something comes up at the church, like something needs to be done, like a, kind of a funeral dinner or a, uh, uh, you know, a project or, or somebody's house, you know, widow's house needs a, a roof needs to be put on or whatever. And, and, and I'll, I'll send out a text to, to a whole bunch of leaders, right? 
Cream of the crop. I mean, Pastor Dan, this happens to Pastor Dan all the time. He'll, he'll have like uh, something, a hole in team kids. You know, we got nobody for this grade, you know. And so, so we send out a text to, to the veterans of our church, like the, the, the seeds. I'm not talking about visitors. I'm talking about people that have, you know, committed their lives to Christ. They're born-again believers. They're, they're, they're living in faith. They're, they're committed to their church. And the most popular response, I can tell you the most, you know, if I send out a text to 20 people, I can tell you percentage-wise, the most popular response will be this. I'll help, but I don't want to be in charge. Okay? Overwhelmingly, I mean, I'm, I'm not just like saying that for sermon reasons. Like, that can be statistically proven, all right? So, I, again, sometimes you get, you know, I can't, or I'm this, or that, or whatever. But, but the, the ones who answer in an affirmative way, it will almost always be, I'll help, but I don't want to be in charge. Now, why is that? Why is that the most popular response? Because we don't like to be on the hook, right? Uh, I mean, we, we always like to have like a way out, right? We, we like to, to be left with, you know, if, if this doesn't work out, or if this turns out to be more than I want, or I don't want it to all fall on me, or I, I, I don't want the accountability and the responsibility, and I want to keep my options open, and, and what, if, what if this thing gets real hard? What if the price is really more than I want to pay? All of those things are hard for us, right, as people. I mean, we're, we're just, that we're wired that way. Commitment is hard. But friends, the only way that we come to God is all in. Like there actually isn't any other way to come to Jesus anyway. In fact, when, when Jesus talks about calling people to himself in the New Testament, he, he talks about it in, in ways like this. Let me, let me read you Matthew 16, 24 and 25. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let me, let me summarize for you in, in the simplest form as I can what Jesus did, just said. He said, if you're going to come after me, then come and die. That's exactly what he said. Come and die. In other words, you're going you're to die to everything else in your life. If you're going to come after me, then turn your back on and deny and die to everything else in your life. That's the way you come. You lose your life. You see, Jesus presses that on us. Well, Joshua is doing a similar thing here in Joshua 24. He's calling on Israel to make a covenant. You know, this had to be frustrating to a lot of them because I, I know probably a bunch of those others are like, of course we're following the Lord. We're the Israelites, you know. I mean, we just did, you know, six years of battle here and we're inhabiting the land and we followed out of you, you know. Of, of course we're going to follow the Lord. And, and, and Joshua's just putting the press on them. No, I want you to make a verb. I want, I want it to be a public commitment that you're saying, I'm going to serve the Lord. The word serve there, when we think of serve, we automatically think of to do work or toil or um, that sort of thing. And, and absolutely, it has that connotation. Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, one of the most interesting uh, uh, definitions I read in, in the, my Hebrew dictionaries was to expend considerable energy and intensity in a task or function. I just kind of like that, you know? What does he say? To, to serve, what is that? You give a bunch of energy and, 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 and effort to something, Okay. But it is very clear that the way that the word serve is used here and often in the Old Testament, it has a clear connotation of worship, okay? It's not just to do things for, but it's to worship. It's to value, it's to, to put as the first, you know, priority of our lives. 
Joshua says, you'll either serve the idols of your forefathers or the idols of your neighbors, or you'll serve the Lord. You, you see that in v- verse 15? It says, if it's evil in, uh, in your eyes to serve the Lord, then choose to stay whom you'll serve. Well, they're the gods that your fathers served. So he's talking about Abraham, before Abraham was, uh, I guess, called by God when they were living in, in Ur, or the, the, the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. So, so you're going you're gonna to worship something. It's essentially what he's saying. You're going to worship something. You're going to live for something. Something is going to be what you depend on. Something is going to be what you look to for your life and your happiness and your fulfillment and your satisfaction and your security. You're going to pour your life. You're going to bet your life on something. It could be money. It could be your job. It could be your own success. It could be your own desires. But you're you're going to worship something. And Joshua is saying, you need to decide what that is. You you need to say it. I I like that. You, You need to say it. He's calling him. You're, you're going to say, you're, you're going to own up to it. You're going to, this is my God. This is what I love and trust and treasure. This comes before everything else. Joshua says, I want you to say that. And in saying that, then you're going to turn to everything else and you're going to say, and that is not. Man, that, that's a helpful thing to do, really. You know, to actually, you know, whenever you're, uh, whenever you're worried about this, you know, your, your, your finance, isn't it kind of a helpful thing to just gather the family and say, okay, I know we've been having lots of trouble with finances, the things are really tight now, but let, let's, just, let's just review, this is not our God. Like, we don't put our trust in this. This will not make us happy. You know what, if something happens and this thing gets full of cash, that's, that doesn't solve us, that doesn't fix us, that, that, isn't, that isn't the answer for our life. Isn't it helpful just to say, that is not my God. It, you know, family is not my God. Sex is not my God. My selfies, is not, that's not my God. None of that will fix me. I, I, think it's, I think it's just a helpful thing to do exactly what Joshua was saying here, and it's to say it out loud, to make, to make that commitment. Joshua's drawing a line in the sand. There's this urgency of the moment. Joshua knows that if the matter is not completely settled in the heart, there's a lot of influences around them that can pull them into idolatry. If the matter's not completely settled in their heart, they're going to end up in idolatry. All idols are steeped in some sort of deceitful desire, some sort of fleshly pleasure. Uh, I think it's, what is it, 1 John that says, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Idols are attractive. If they weren't attractive, people wouldn't worship them. You know, I, I mean, all of those things are really tempting to put your hope in and to, and to base your life upon. And, and, and Joshua knows that. He knows that the Israelites are going to have all this stuff pulling at them. And he knows that to be half in for the Lord will eventually mean you're out. To be half in eventually means you'll be out. It would seem that probably there was already a little idolatry festering in the Israelites. Probably actually to to make that statement, a true biblical statement, there, there always is, I think. That's why he says in verse 14, you've got to put them away. You don't, you don't need to put something away that isn't near you, right? So it was probably festering, probably creeping in. Which again is why Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he's got to deny himself. He's got to turn away from something in, in order to turn to me. And so Joshua calls them to commitment. I think it's interesting where he has them gather. Uh, Joshua 24 once says, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem. And some are the elders. Now, now why is that? 
an interesting thing. Well, when you go back to Genesis 12, so God first appears to Abraham, and he calls him from Ur, and he says, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take you to a place that I'm going to give to you and your descendants forever and ever. And so Abraham follows the Lord, and the first place they arrive is Shechem. In Genesis 12, 6, it says, Abraham passed through the land to, a, to the place at Shechem, at the oak of Moreh, at, at the time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So this is a significant place. It's the first place that Abraham stopped and God said, okay, Abraham, this is the land. This is what I'm giving you. And in fact, if we go on to read Genesis 12 there, Abraham builds an altar there, and that's the first place he worships. And so it's kind of cool that Joshua calls them back. And he says, all right, you know, here's the place where, you know, generations ago, God appeared to Abraham and said, this is the place. This is the land. This is what I'm going to give you. And now look, God's done it. We're standing in it. Remember our, uh, the promise God made to our, our forefather Abraham? Well, we're standing in the very same spot, and God has been faithful. And then he goes on to remind them of all of God's faithfulness, okay? So, so this first uh, 13 verses of chapter 24 are all basically saying, look at how faithful God has been to you. Okay, now, now the really cool thing is this is God speaking. So Joshua says, thus says the Lord, and then the Lord speaks. And, and, and notice the eyes, okay? I tried to kind of emphasize it when I read through it, but like notice in verse three, I took your father Abraham from beyond the river. I, I, I love that. So the way that it, it pictures Abraham is he's, he's living in Ur, he's worshiping these idols, and God comes in and takes him. He's like, all right, Abraham, you're coming with me. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dump my riches on your life. You're going to come with me. I, the, the whole emphasis is on what God did. I took your father Abraham from beyond the river. Okay? Remember, Abraham was childless. And so at the end of verse 3, he says, I gave him Isaac. God did that. Verse 4, to Isaac, I gave Jacob. God did that. And I gave Esau the hill country to Seir to possess. Verse 5, and I sent Moses and Aaron. And I plagued Egypt with, with what I did in the midst of it. And I brought you out. Verse uh, 6, I brought your fathers out of Egypt. And on and on and on he goes, all the way down to verse, uh, verse 12 and 13. It was not by your sword or by your bow. Verse 13, I gave you a land. So over and over and over and over again, he says, this is what God has done. God has been faithful. God gave. God sent. God played. God brought you out. God delivered you. God gave the land. In other words, God has kept his promises already for generations. So basically, Joshua's presenting the case. Why should you follow the Lord? Why, why should you say, hey, none of this other stuff will satisfy my soul. It's only God. Why should you do that? Well, look, we're standing in the very place that God promised Abraham generations ago, and God has fulfilled every promise he's ever made already. God is a faithful God. He's employed his might and his power and his glory to work on your behalf. He's initiated this relationship with you. You were idolaters and God took Abraham, plucked him out of that. You were slaves in Egypt and I pulled you out of that. You were helpless to gain the promised land and I gave it to you. Seeing the faithfulness of God ought to stir your hearts to commitment. What's your idol? What are you, what are you, what are you tempted to live for? What are you tempted to put your hope in? Well, I would just challenge you today that that very thing has disappointed you most of your whole life. Why do you keep trusting in it? And then I would make the case that Joshua is making and that God has been incredibly faithful to you. 
So the next thing Joshua does is he commands them or calls them to put away their idols. Look at verse 14. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. It becomes really clear that the root cause of lack of commitment is idolatry. That one kind of stings for me. But I, I think that's what Joshua is saying over and over again. I mean, he, every time he calls them to make a commitment, he says, you got to put away this. If you're going to make this commitment, you got to put away, you got to put away your idol. Your idol is the thing that will keep you from being committed to the Lord. An idol is something you put your confidence and hope in more than God. An idol is something that you love and enjoy and delight in more than God. Man, just let that sink in. I, I, I so often think that we in America think we don't struggle with idols because unlike in India, we don't drive to the corner and see a monkey god, you know, with people putting food on it. But... I would say that there are no lack of idols in America. When you define it as, what, what do you love more than God? What do, you, what do you delight in more than God? What are you committed to more than God? What do you look to more than God? All that we love should be loved less than God and for the glory of God. So love and devotion to other things will keep you from being committed to God. If, if you love something... More than God, man, you're going to shy away from commitments. You're going to waver. You're going to vacillate. You're going to hesitate. You're going to stay away from things that might threaten your idol. Man, do you think that's true of us? Do, do we pull back from commitment because we're afraid of our idol of comfort, maybe? That it'll be threatened, or our idol of money, or our idol of selfish desire? Or, I think we do. Look, look, go back to chapter 23. No, I think this is an interesting little section here. In verse 11, he says, uh, Joshua says to the people, Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you and a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. The thing that's really interesting to me is that he starts out by saying, be careful to love the Lord your God. So, so be careful to love the Lord your God. And then he jumps immediately to, because if you don't, drive out your idols, if you don't completely disassociate yourselves from all these other things that you're tempted to love, then they're going to creep in and they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna ruin your life. Exactly what he says. The more you treasure and value and look to idols, the less you will treasure and look to God. The root cause of lack of commitment is idolatry. You know, much like marriage, for a husband to treasure and love or be devoted to another woman, particularly in a sexual way, means he can't be what he's supposed to be to his wife. It's just, you can't. I know lots of people try, okay? But, but the reality is you can't. Like, that's an impossibility. And so, so Joshua warns that choosing to serve God means to guard your life from things that will pull you into idolatry, to guard your life from loving things more than God. Look at verse 12, Joshua 23, 12. 
For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you. You know, I think the real danger here is, is not, not even a wholesale turning away from God, but it's a mixing. John and I have spent a lot of time in Central America, and there's a really interesting thing that happens um, in Central America that's very visible. It's not, I think it happens all over the world, but it's really visible in Central America where you'll have people that are, are, are worshipers of the God of the Bible, three-fourths. And then the other fourth is really their Mayan ancestors. Like they've just, they've just combined them. And, and like it's really weird. Like it's to, to outsiders walking in, we're, I mean, it, it looks really strange because you have this kind of remnant of what looks almost like Roman Catholicism, but then some very distinct Mayan worship just merged right in there. And, and so it really wasn't a wholesale turning away. It was kind of a merging the two. I mean, I think we see that in America, actually. I had this really stark uh, conversation with some people about a month ago, and it was super clear. I mean, it was super clear that what they had done was taken Christianity, taken, taken Jesus' life and death, and merged it with New Age theology, and just kind of just, just buckled the two together. And they, they, they did not see that at all. In fact, I would say they thought they were the same as me. But as I listened to them, I was like, man, we do not believe the same thing at all. And that was right here in Woodward. It was just a, a merging of the two. And, and so one of the big dangers of, of idolatry is not that there's a wholesale turning away from the God of the Bible, but there's this kind of pulling this other stuff in so that you have a false, a false God, a false idol. Notice what Joshua does next. This is really interesting. He calls the people to count the cost. Okay, so in uh, 24, um, beginning in verse 14, you know, choose this day who you'll serve. Uh, he gives us whole, this is what God's done for you. And then in verse 16, the people answer him, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods, for it was the, the, the God who did all this stuff for us, and they kind of review all that God had done for them. And then in, in verse 18, it says, And the Lord drove out from us all the peoples of the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, here's their declaration, therefore they're saying it, we also will serve the Lord, for he's our God. Now you would think a big smile would come on Joshua's face right there, right? Like, like they've just said it. We will serve the Lord, for he's our God. Look, look at what he does next. Verse 19. Joshua said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord. So, so they, they just said, we'll do it. And now he says, no, you won't do it. What, what is he doing? Well, I, I think what he's doing here is he's calling on the people to count the cost. I think there's several things going on here. Number one, I think Joshua knows that it's easy to say something that you really don't mean. Or maybe that you really haven't thought out. I, I, think, I think words are cheap. And, and so Joshua is kind of ramping up this, our, you know, make sure you're counting the cost. Jesus did the same thing. We'll, we'll look at that in just a second. Make sure you're counting the cost. Make sure you understand what you're getting into. I was meeting Friday with a, a couple guys, and uh, Dino and Chris, and, and uh, I think Chris brought up, you know, applying this to marriage. And so I think we're going to change the way we do marriages here at Lincoln Avenue. So uh, the first part's going to be the same. I'm going to say, you know, do you take this woman to be your, you know, lawfully, you'll do promise to this, that, and, you know, and they're going to say, I do. 
And then I'm going to say, no, you don't, you know. Do you really understand what you're doing, huh? Do you understand that this thing's going to be hard? Do you understand that you're both going to gain weight? He's going to lose his hair. Your baby's not going to sleep all night. You're going to have financial problems. Do you really want to really make your commitment? You know, I, I, I think that's incredibly biblical, right? I mean, that's exactly what Joshua does. And then we'll see. What do they say next, you know? I mean, are, are, have you thought this through? But that's what Joshua says. He says, you're not able to serve the Lord. Verse 19, he's a holy God. He's a jealous God. He'll not forgive your transgressions, your sins, if you forsake the Lord and serve other gods, and he'll turn and do you harm and consume you after done you good. So what's he doing? He's saying, you better count the cost. You You better realize God is a jealous God. He is not okay with you devoting yourself to other gods. Man, he's not okay with being forced. See, Joshua wants to avoid what we have a lot in America is people say, man, God, Jesus is my God. But I am going to love everything else and be committed to everything else and give him very little, but I'm going to still say he's my God. And Joshua's like, no, don't do that. I don't want that. That's not what we're looking for here. Is this cheap commitment. God is a jealous God. It's not okay to give him lip service while you treasure and trust and put everything else first in your life. Again, Jesus said some of the same things. Luke 14, verse 25. Great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Man, that that verse has really just... (laughs) Really frustrated people and, and caused them to say, what is he saying? But when you put it in this context, isn't it really obvious what he's saying? Because what, what are we tempted to put first in our lives? Probably family, isn't it? Right? And so he, Jesus just comes right out the bat and says, look, if you're going to follow me, like I, you, you got to know that I'm God and that I, I'm the best thing for all of your life. He goes on in verse, the next verse, verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Which one of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost? You see, Jesus says that whole, whoever doesn't love, you know, whoever loves father, mother, brother, sister, husband, wife more than me is not worthy of me. He says that in a context of count the cost. Verse 29, otherwise when he has laid a foundation, he's not able to finish. All who see it begin to mock him, saying this man would build and was not able to finish. Verse 31, or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not first sit down and deliberate whether he ha- he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes at him, at him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is a great way, sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. I mean, that, essentially, that's exactly what Jesus is doing in the New Testament. Joshua is really doing what Jesus is doing there. He's saying, count the cost. Realize that what, what, what is asked of you here is that the Lord be your only God and that you serve him and no other and that everything else comes second place to him. It's costly to follow Jesus. Loving him more than anything will cost you. It'll cost you your idols. You'll be stretched outside your comfort zone. You'll be stretched to depend on him. Choose this day who you'll serve. I, I think there's also some pretty good theology going on here. Um, 
I hope I'm not stretching this. What I'm about to tell you is absolutely true, and, and it's in the New Testament. Um, I, I'm linking it with this, and, and I, I, I think it's fair to do this. But in verse 19, Joshua says, you're not able to serve the Lord, after he's just called him to serve the Lord, for he's a holy God. He's a, he's a jealous God. He'll not forget. So, so essentially, what he says here is, serve the Lord, but you're not able to serve the Lord. Actually, that's theologically accurate. We, we've been memorizing a verse um, in Acts. Some of you have been singing it if you hang around here for teen kids. So Dan has written a song about it. Uh, you wrote that, didn't you? Yeah. No? Oh, you stole it from some. I, th- I thought you wrote it. Man. But it says this, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all mankind. So, so the book of Acts really says, you know, you're not able to serve the Lord. Um, the Bible would tell us that we're sinful. We're not able to serve the Lord. In fact, the beauty of the gospel is, is that by being joined to Jesus, to Jesus' perfect life and sacrificial death, if we're joined to him, we get his righteousness in our account. We're indwelt with his spirit. And then in the fullness of his spirit, we're able to serve him. But it's him who's giving the power and the ability to do so. So, so verse like 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11 says this, Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. I, I guess I see a little bit of that theology here as well. If, you, if you're going to serve him, it's, it's going to be because you're connected to Jesus. It's going to be because you're joined to him. It's going to be because it's his strength in and through you. Well, finally, last thing, Joshua gives them an example. And we may come back to this. I knew we would not have much time. So we may come back to this or we may move on to something else. But Joshua 24, 15 says this. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You know, I think it's fitting that a dying man would make a statement about the future that included his children and his grandchildren. Jonathan Edwards um, the great theologian of the colonial area, era, wrote on his deathbed, he wrote this. This is, I think, the last thing he ever wrote. As to my children, you are now to be left fatherless, which I hope will be an inducement to you to seek a father who will never fail you. With his last moments of strength, Edwards used them to charge his children to follow a heavenly father who will not fail. And I think what I see Joshua doing here is saying, first of all, I love what he said. I'm not going to be persuaded by y'all. Whatever you choose to do, that'll be on you. I'm doing something different. I'm going to, I'm going to follow the Lord. But then he says, in my house, in my family. My, my family is going to follow the Lord. Maybe we'll have a chance next week to talk about that. I, I know that we don't can't control all those circumstances. But, but I think there's something pretty, uh, pretty needed for us to look into the next generation and say, not only will I follow the Lord, but my house will. And I'm, and I'm going to live in such a way, and I'm going to love in such a way, and I'm going to gospel in such a way 
that future generations will follow the Lord as well. Father, we ask for your help. God, that we might make a commitment this morning. Father, I, I believe there may be people here who have not yet turned away from the idols of this world, who've not yet denied themselves and taken up their cross, who've not yet died to their life to follow you. God, I pray that this morning that they would see your faithfulness. God, I pray this morning that they would see that you're a promise keeper, that you're a covenant keeper, that you will not fail them, that their hearts would be stirred to seek a father who will never fail. And Father, I pray that they might turn away from all that we are tempted into trust in in this world and put their faith in you. God, draw us to yourself. Give us courage to make commitments to, to live a no-turning-back life, an all-in life. Father, help us in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand, please, as we sing?